turn to Hebrews chapter 9 as we continue on. And uh, last week, the, the Hebrews 9, I'm s- splitting it up into three sections. And, and this morning, we'll look at uh, verses 11 through 22. And, and last week, we started out with the first 10 verses, uh, looking at the tent uh, that was in the wilderness. And, and later, there was a temple built that Solomon built, and then that had to be rebuilt. But, uh, but God had given instructions for Moses to build this tent in which uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant would be, and then the Holy of Holies, and, and God's uh, presence in, in a special way was on that mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. And, and we talked about how that whole structure and the whole duties of, of the, the high priest and, and the rest of the priesthood uh, showed the greatness of God. Um, God is so much greater than we can imagine so much more powerful and so pure and so holy. It's almost stifling to think about how much of God there is abundantly great. And with the priests, the the message was very clear. When you go into the temple, and especially the further you get in, be careful. Be very careful. God is so much more than you're expecting. And we mentioned last week that we will all stand before that God. He is the one true God, and we will stand before him. And we didn't leave without hope. We mentioned that the writer is pointing us to Christ. In fact, we get there this morning. You'll notice uh, the third word in our in our passage here will be uh, Christ. Uh, so he's leading us there. Um, but it really crescendos next week. This week, we are going to take a look at the, at the temple and, and uh, some of what the priests had done, or I should say the tents, and how Christ is better. And as I mentioned, we'll crescendo it next week. But let's take a look at this passage this morning and what it is teaching us. It's Hebrews chapter 9. Let me begin at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your teaching that we find in it. We ask that as we look into this passage, that you will be glorified, that you will make your will known, and that we will learn from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you look at this passage, there is one word that kept coming up over and over again, and, and uh, it might surprise some. Uh, especially non-Christians that would look at this and wonder what's going on. That word uh, that gets mentioned over and over again, if you notice, is blood. It, it starts in verse 12, and I just keep talking, reading blood and blood, and, and it goes all the way to the end then in verse 22. In fact, in those 11 verses from 12 to uh, 22, I mentioned the word blood, Ten times. And then it's kind of insinuated more times than that. And and in verse 22, it kind of summarizes the whole idea that the without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It points us to this necessity of, of bloodshed for forgiveness. Now, you notice we're kind of starting at the end of the passage, and, and we'll do that. We'll start near the end and work our way back up, but this idea of, of blood, as I mentioned, a non-Christian might come here and think, you know, what kind of slash movie friends are you that you just uh, talk so much about blood? It's kind of like the cross to people uh, who were alive before Christ died on the cross, and before that became a symbol of victory, they would look at that and think, why would you have a, a cross in, in your windows and, and on your sign out front? It's, it's a horrible uh, image, this cross. Uh, but it was, it was where our victory was won. Christ defeated death. And, and this idea of blood is tied up with the idea of death and, and life. And let me just establish this idea real quickly. There's uh, much more to be said, but at another time. But, but let me get uh, started uh, by going back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, the creation account, and, and God had created Adam and told Adam, all right, you can eat from any tree you want here except there's one. There, there's only one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of that one, for in the day of you eat, that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And the Hebrew there is literally die, die, which is the Hebrew language way of saying it will absolutely happen. You will die, die. There's no negotiating. There's no doubt about this. 
you disobey. There's your one act of, of obedience. Don't eat from that tree. You disobey and you will absolutely die. Well, we all know what happened. Adam ate of that and humanity has been living in sin ever since. Uh, and then, if I can move ahead, and once again, this is going to be pretty quick, in Genesis chapter 9, God is speaking to Noah, and he's, he, this is after the flood, and he's telling Noah, okay, you can eat the plants that I gave you, and you can eat these animals that I gave you, but in, in chapter or Genesis 9, 4, God tells Noah, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, uh, and we see there this symbolic connection between blood and, and life. And that whole thing is, uh, that, that concept is basic, really, to the sacrificial system. It, it's, it's mentioned in Leviticus a few times. You can see it in Deuteronomy. Uh, it even becomes a thing in 1 Samuel chapter 14 with, with Saul, this, this idea of, of the blood and, and how that's, that symbolizes life. And so what we have is, is when there's blood, there's life, but with the blood, that's death. And that shows the devastating results of, of sin, the horribleness of sin and the deserved punishment for sin. You will die. And so what we get with this, the, where we are in, in this chapter right now, the first 10 verses, if I can just talk about that just real briefly, it was the greatness of God, as I mentioned, how he is so much greater than we can even imagine. And then when we get all this mention of blood now, we see the terribleness of sin. We're kind of on the two ends of the spectrum here. And, and I want to point this out because we tend to soften this quite often. Uh, and we don't do it intentionally a lot, but I think sometimes it just happens. We tend to think of, of God maybe as a better version of me. You know, God is, or maybe a, a godly person, you know, maybe the, the best person you can think of. You say, well, God is, is kind of like me just without my mistakes. But no, God is so much better than that. And we can't soften just how great and pure and holy God is. And sometimes we'll soften sin. Uh, and sometimes, as I mentioned, it's unintentional, but we'll say, well, sin is a mistake I make on a bad day. And, you know, we just overlook it and move on with life. It really didn't hurt anybody, but that's not it at all. Sin is horrible. And it, it's a horrible offense to a perfectly pure and holy God. And the constant idea of blood in that first covenant, as our writer calls it, was this constant reminder of sin. Something had to die because you've sinned and they would have all of these, especially on feast days, all of these sacrifices over and over and blood everywhere. They would even have troughs, you know, to set up to, to get it away from the people because that's how bad sin is. Uh, J.C. Ryle, and many of you have come to realize he's kind of my go-to guy when I talk about sin a little bit. He, he wrote a book. He died in 1900. Wrote a book called Holiness, and he starts a book on holiness with a chapter on sin. And the reason he does this, and I'll just read actually the first uh, couple of sentences in his book, 
Uh, he writes, he that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. And then a little later he writes, the plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the roots of all saving Christianity. And I like how he mentions that you have to start, uh, dig down low if you're going to build high. Because we have a God who is high and mighty. And so we need that right knowledge of sin. Because as he says, it lies at, at the root of all saving Christianity. Now, J.C. Ryle, he'll quote a few Old Testament passages and and the original readers of the book of Hebrews, they know these passages very well. And they understand what they mean. And I'll just read a few of them. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, this is before the flood. And it reads, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of his heart, only evil continually. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 4, I'm just going to paraphrase here a little bit. He's, he's writing to God's people, the nation of Israel, but God's people, and he writes, uh, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. You know, think of what he's saying from the very, very bottom of your foot to the top of your head. There is not one good thing I can find in the middle. That is sin. And that is what sin has done to us. Uh, J.C. Ryle then later on in that chapter writes this. Sin is a disease which pervades and runs through every part of our moral constitution and every faculty of our minds. The understanding, the affections, the reasoning powers, the will are all more or less infected. There's a, something you may have heard of called total depravity or radical depravity. And, and uh, that's this idea, not that we're as bad as we can possibly be uh, by the grace of God, but rather that sin has indwelt every part of who we are. We're, we're totally depraved, right to our very core. And, and that pervasiveness of sin was brought up over and over in that first covenant. And as I mentioned, we're going to start near the end of this passage as we finally get back to it now. Uh, but in verses 19 through 20, and, and a lot of what he's talking about here is, comes from Leviticus and Numbers and, and even Exodus, I guess, with uh, Moses. But, but the, the sprinkling of, of blood on the tent and on the things in the tent that, that were uh, used in worship and on the people, 
that they had Moses had read the, the law to the people and, and they all agreed, yes, we will follow God. And then uh, he dipped the, the hyssop in, in the blood and then he started sprinkling it on, on the people. He didn't get all of them, but symbolically it was on all of, of the people. Uh, you see that in, in verses uh, 19 and, and 21, I guess. And, and, and he did that because, as I mentioned in verse 22, um, uh, there is, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so he would he shed blood and then he would start sprinkling and, and purifying everything. And, and in verse 22, you also see that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. He would, he would get it on everything. It was on the altar, it was on the tent, everywhere. The expositor's Greek testament uh, has a note on this verse, and uh, they write this, cleansing was required of everything connected with God's worship because it was stained through contact with man. Man had built the tents, so it was stained with sin. Man was there, so everything around was stained with sin, that pervasiveness of sin. Uh, they knew it very well under that first covenant, and, and that was one of the outcomes of, of that system that they had set up, that their sin is massive, both in frequency and in effect. Everything was tainted. And we can have a couple of ideas when we think about this then. In fact, at our uh, Wednesday prayer or prayer and, and Bible study, we talked a little bit about this. Uh, one idea is to think, well, isn't God really overreacting? I mean, is he just that angry and vindictive and, and, and just really overreacting to sin? How come so many things are dying? Does that really have to happen? But we remember that God is completely just and and that death is what sin deserves and you can kind of go back to that heidelberg catechism and and read uh some of that god uh he can't just overlook sin because then he wouldn't be just but he is perfectly just he is perfectly holy and sin is heinous and he can have no part of sin and we just can't forget how high and indescribably holy and perfect God is in everything. In, in, in purity and in justice. So then the better thought is this. This God who is that pure and holy and powerful is also inexpressibly merciful what a merciful god because for us to be that tainted with sin we really shouldn't have any hope at all but he is so merciful his plan was to redeem his people but it was going to have to happen through death that's the way it had to happen and so as we move up in our passage a little bit in verses 15 through 18, we see these the covenants, the first covenant and then the covenant with Christ, they're inaugurated with blood. Uh, in, in verse 18, we see even the first covenant required blood. And, and that was lacking. 
Animals can't redeem, but they did remind the people of the heinousness of their sin and just how much they have sinned. And, and it was also pointing toward the new covenant and, and the death that could redeem. If you look at the end of, of verse 15, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Uh, even they were saved by the blood of Christ, but and that death has occurred. And there are some ideas in this that, that we're going to pick up more when we get to the end of the chapter, like why is Christ's blood so much better than the animals and, and, and this idea of the eternal uh, salvation, and that, that's all coming. But I want us to focus a, a little bit uh, today on, on something else here. And there, there is some wordplay in verse 16 uh, my translation reads the will. He talks about a will. I think in the King James, it's testament. Uh, that word is actually diatheke, which is the word for covenant. He's kind of playing with that word covenant. Uh, it's, it's much like a will. In fact, uh, the, the same word is, is used. And, and like a will, which takes effect once the author, if I can use that word, if the author dies, it's the death of Christ that establishes this new covenant. Uh, when you look at verse 20, there's that quote that uh, he's quoting Moses, and this comes from Exodus uh, 24, verse 8, when uh, he says that this is the blood of the covenant. Uh, Jesus repeats that, but changes one word in there. In Matthew 28, or 26, uh, verse 28, Jesus repeats that but says, this is my blood of the covenant. He's the true sacrifice and the will or the covenant is established through him and through his blood. And just to kind of pick up and, and stay with this idea of the will for a couple of minutes, um, I, I think a lot of us have entertained that idea. I think there's stories about it, and there's certainly internet scams about it, but th this idea of this rich uncle that you never even knew, he dies, and all of a sudden you get a letter or someone shows up at your door and says, oh, by the way, uh, uncle, whoever, that you never knew, he died. He was a multimillionaire, and he left you everything. It's right here in the well. Oh, this is great. You know, and, and sometimes maybe if you... You're down and out and financially you think, well, wouldn't that be nice if that uncle I never knew, uh, if I, I just show up and now I'm a millionaire? Uh, it just kind of stumbled into it. I never knew the guy, never did anything for this fortune, but I just kind of stumbled into it. And, and I think too many people in our world today kind of take that view of redemption. Maybe I'll just stumble into it. You know, maybe something will just happen, a knock on the door. Oh, by the way, you've got an eternal inheritance now. Oh, this is great. Never even knew. But you notice in verse 15, the, the internal inheritance, and we don't just stumble into that. Once again, when we think about how great God is and how, how bad our sin is and how the just penalty for that sin is eternal destruction, eternal uh, torture, eternal death. Do you really want to go with that plan? Kind of uh, asking questions last week. Do you really want to go with that plan of, well, maybe I'll stumble into it. Maybe I'll stumble into 
my eternal in inheritance that, that's great. Considering, especially because we know exactly who it is that does secure our eternal redemption, which takes us back up further now uh, to the top of the passage. In verse 12, you notice that phrase, eternal redemption. In verse 11, uh, it's the high priest who uh, enters into the greater and more perfect tent. Now, later on in the chapter, we're going to read about the better sacrifice in verse 23 and, and of Christ being in heaven itself in verse 24. We're going to get to some of that. We're not uh, going to establish. Once again, I kind of want to just to focus on, on one thing. What we see in this passage um, with the sprinkling of blood and the ashes of the heifer, you notice that in verse 13. By the way, we're not going to get too much into that. It comes from Numbers uh, 19, and and uh, it has to do with someone who's defiled by uh, touching a dead body. And so then you burn this heifer, and and uh, like I said, it, it, then they purify the flesh. That's that's what they're getting at here, the, the purification of the flesh in verse 13. But notice what that insinuates. That's external. It's outside. All of that first covenant stuff, purification of, of the flesh, but we need something deeper than that. We can look again to verse 22. I mentioned that was kind of the summary of the whole thing, and, and we keep going back there. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and that's what we need. Not just the flesh gets cleaned up, but we need sins forgiven. Another way to look at verse 22 is this way. Every single sin will be punished. Every single sin is going to get punished. Blood's going to get shed for every sin that there is. In 1 John chapter 7, um, or chapter 1, verse 7, uh, John writes, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so there is this idea that, that Christ's blood is sufficient for all of our sins. And that's an idea that we'll pick up on as we look later on in the chapter and also into verse or chapter 10 as well. But it's this idea that what Christ does is more than just purify the flesh. In verse 14, he purifies our conscience from dead works. Uh, dead works, R.C. Sproul uh, defines that as sinful deeds that deserve the covenant curse of death. Uh, the 17th century Puritan John Owens writes that our works are dead, and I quote, because they proceed from a principle of spiritual death or are the works of them who have no vital principle of holiness in them because they are useless and fruitless as all dead things are they deserve death and tend thereunto but Christ purifies to the innermost and that there's a purpose for this notice the end of verse 14 then to serve the living God 
And we get this contrast then, the contrast between dead works and a living God. What begins with God is going to end with God. It doesn't end with man. It's not just that he purifies us so as, as John Calvin writes, we're not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt, but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. Paul picks up on the idea. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes about the praise of his glorious grace, that's God's glorious grace, which he has bestowed, or he has blessed us in the beloved, that's his son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then in chapter 2, Paul writes this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ cleanses us to the innermost for a purpose. And it's that we can serve the living God. We don't have to continue on with our deeds of death wallowing around in that and so when we tie this all together then and and we start once again by considering god and his overwhelming purity and power and and greatness and remember how the priests as they would on the, especially on the day of atonement go into the tent and everything had to be or the 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 holy of holies in there they would uh, they would have to do everything perfectly with sacrifices and 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 sprinkling blood everywhere and it brought enough incense they really couldn't even get a good look at, at the ark of the covenant at the mercy seat and 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 they were barely able to get out of there alive it had to be done perfectly or they couldn't make it out uh, alive and that was only a shadow of the real temple that was just an earthly thing, even. That's, that's a, a shadow of the greatness of, of the real holy place that we see in, in verse 12. So we consider how great God is, that these, these hand-chosen priests could barely get out of there alive. And then we consider who we are and that we are vile to the core, basically. Sinners to the very depth. As Jeremiah said, desperately sick. Our hearts are, are deceitful. Above everything else, they're deceitful. We consider God, we consider us, and then we consider what God has done. Given us this high priest now in this true temple who purifies us through and through to the very core of our being, our hearts, our consciences, our souls. He purifies us all the way through. And the writer of Hebrews, is, as we've been reminded over and over again, writing to these first century Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism or some form of Judaism, giving up this great high priest. And again, he would ask the question here, do you really want to give up this high priest who can purify you 
that truly and that thoroughly. That high priest who can take us from dead works that are just going to lead to death to a living God cleanses you so thoroughly that, that you're useful to that God. We're more than survivors, kind of like those uh, priests that would make it out of the Holy of Holies alive. And you say, well, they survived. We're more than survivors. In fact, uh, Paul will write in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's why Paul would write of, of pressing on and of striving and of uh, just doing things compelled by the love of God. He's compelled by the, by the love that God has for us and that he would cleanse us that thoroughly and, and make us useful and compelled by the love of God that is in us as he removes that vileness in us and replaces it with his love, his Holy Spirit, that we can serve him, that we have this purpose, true purpose, that leads to our eternal inheritance, our eternal life, which is in Christ, released from dead works, and brought to the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have cleansed us with the blood of Christ. We thank you that you've given us 